Okay, friends, last couple of days we've been talking a lot about the mind and meditation and how to cultivate mindfulness, concentration, and the development of, of wisdom, three levels of wisdom. And you know, basically, you know, focusing on the, the meditation practice. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, you know, in a couple of days, you'll be going back home, and the biggest question people have is, you know, how can they integrate uh, the practice of the Dhamma and meditation uh, into their daily life? And they're wondering how are they going to, you know, continue their uh, practice, uh, you know, amidst, uh, you know, balancing, you know, work and family and social obligations and other uh, pressures and the fast-paced uh, busyness of, uh, you know, <laughs> most people's daily life. And so today I want to begin talking about, you know, how, how to gradually incorporate uh, the, our uh, meditation practice uh, into uh, the daily life or into the Dhamma. But, you know, meditation... Uh, you know, is only a part of the practice of Dhamma. Now, normally when people say they're practicing Dhamma, of course, they might mean different things depending on what it means for them. But, uh, you know, the traditional uh, practice of Dhamma, according to the, the Theravada, 
you know, uh, teaching is, you know, the Eightfold Path. Because the teachings of the Buddha, the Dhamma, are outlined in the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And that path is called the, the Noble Eightfold Path, or Arya Astanga Marga, Magga. <clears throat> and basically that incorporates uh, how we live our life. In meditation, is only two uh, of those steps, uh, really, out of eight. Uh, There's the meditation practice. The rest of it is, uh, many of the other ones are about actually how to, uh, guidelines of how to uh, live our uh, life and our interactions with uh, you know, uh, society and other people. Because that's where, you know, most of you uh, will live your life. And so it uh, governs all aspects of our body, speech, and mind. So <clears throat> I wanted to begin, you know, talking about that. Uh, of course, the Noble Eightfold Path, as most of you probably uh, uh, know, or I've read about anyway, you know, it has eight uh, steps called the, the path leading to the end of suffering. And it begins with right understanding called samaditi or right view. Sometimes it's called right view. Other times other people translate it as right understanding. But basically it means understanding uh, what you're about to do. Now, if you're going to spend, you know, many years or let's say your whole life uh, practicing the Dhamma, or at least a long time, let's say, uh, and, you know, a lot of effort, even a lot of money, uh, a lot of your time in uh, practicing, you should understand uh, what it is. You should understand why you're doing it. So right understanding is that, uh, that basic uh, understanding of, uh, you know, what, what the, the life is and how to live a skillful life that mi minimizes the accumulation of, of problems of suffering and to make life uh, flow more uh, mellowly and uh, uh, you know, flow on toward the, the goal of uh, liberation or the, the end of suffering. <clears throat> and of course, suffering has three levels. The Buddha defines suffering as three levels. I think I've already mentioned those, but just briefly, you know, the first level is the suffering connected with this uh, body of getting sick, diseases, old age, death, and all the other types of problems and pain connected with your own body or the bodies of your loved one and then the mental grief, sorrow, lamentation, weeping and wailing that go uh, when your loved ones get sick 
or killed in accidents or, uh, and so on. So that's called, so ord let's say, ordinary suffering. And then there's the suffering of not getting what you want and getting what you don't want. So this is more subtle, it's more uh, mental, where the other one involves a lot of you know, physical suffering. Uh, of course, the second level also uh, involves that too. If you, you, know, you get sick, it's something you don't want. And so you suffer because of, of that. And then the last uh, level of suffering, as I mentioned, in short, the five aggregates of clinging. So I like to call that or relate to that as the suffering of ignorance, the suffering of not knowing the truth. Because it's not knowing the truth of the five aggregates that we cling to them and identify them as I, me, and mine. And all of our karma is revolving and, uh, around uh, those five aggregates. So it's you know, the suffering of ignorance, not knowing the truth, or a spiritual suffering. So you could say there's physical suffering, mental suffering, spiritual suffering. Uh, and the practice of Dhamma helps to address all those three levels. Anyway, so the right understanding, as we've already mentioned, is understanding the law of karma. It's probably the most important one because that's what we're involved with in a daily basis, our actions of body, speech, and mind. And what are called the three doorways of uh, creating karma are through the body, speech and mind and and all of the steps of the eightfold path are basically designed for helping to purify those uh, levels of uh, mind or thought and through the practice of sila controlling and eventually purifying our actions of body and speech, which contribute or cause the greatest types of direct uh, suffering is feedback or consequences of our speech and actions. So the law of karma is probably the most important one to understand. And we've already uh, mentioned a, a few of those uh, things. Uh, and then of impermanence, the three characteristics of uh, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or impermanence, uh, and then the suffering that comes from impermanence, and, and no self. And of course, many other uh, related issues. But basically, it means, uh, you know, it, it's a kind of a, you know, right understanding is kind of a world view. It's our view of, our understanding of what sort of life is and the purpose of life. And the end of suffering is also one of the purposes of life, you know, within that Dharma uh, viewpoint. 
and of course uh, the suffering is in the in the Dhamma also includes the idea about uh, the immensity of sansara that not only in this life itself but this mind has been uh, moving through the realms of sansara since basically beginningless time that this life itself that we may be suffering in isn't uh, sort of the only one this mind is an ancient mind that's been uh, you know being recycled over and over and over again through uh, various types of uh, experiences now of course uh, some people may not believe in that uh, <coughs> but that's part of the traditional you know, Dhamma understanding about uh, the suffering. That is not just that the suffering we're having in this life, but if if you don't take care of this life and in suffering in this life, then there's bound to be uh, other existences where you're going to continue to suffering. Because whatever you die with in your mind is carried over into a, uh, another existence where you have to take care of your unfinished business. Uh, and basically that means whatever habits and uh, other uh, delusions and so on that uh, if you still die with, those are going to be the, the basis of having to come back and deal with another time or many other uh, times. Anyway, so that's, you know, that's part of the uh, uh, understanding about uh, the dukkha and suffering. So, but anyway, so this, uh, w the world view is important. So, because the way you believe or the way you think about life or how life started, or what is the purpose of life. That's the way you're going to think. So the way you believe is the way you're going to think. And as I mentioned yesterday, the way you think is the way you're going to speak. And the way you speak is the way you're going to use the body in actions. And the way that you're going to probably earn your livelihood So, the right view is very important. Because we can see that there's lots of world views in the world, whether they're religious views about you know, what life is or what happens after life or the purpose of life or how you, know, you reach a salvation or whatever. Or even... Uh, philosophical views like the capitalist view or the Marxist view or whatever. And that people live their life according to uh, these uh, belief systems. And we can see that due to some of those views, the world has gotten to the point where it is now. You know, if you have a world view that says the the earth was uh, made by somebody for you to enjoy and go there and multiply and 
you know, use it the way you want and so on, well, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, that, that's what happened to a certain extent. So, <clears throat> anyway, so that's why cultivating the right view is very important. But the right view uh, is also about the mind and, and what is the mind in the nature of uh, consciousness even, which is even more important uh, in the Dhamma point of view. So, that right view, again, it refers to those three levels of, of wisdom. So you get an intellectual right view by reading the texts, hearing talks. You know, you get interested in, uh, let's say, the, the Dhamma, something new. Oh, I haven't heard that before, you know. Four Noble Truths, uh, the end of suffering, uh, nirvana, you know, karma. You read these things, you know, kind of, you know, pricks your interest. Yeah, it's pretty cool, you know. But then you have to go on thinking about it. And th this is an experience that I had. When I first heard about Buddhism, it was because I took a course in world religions in junior college. Because I was planning a trip around the world, you know, by land back in the following the hippie trail, you know, in the early 70s. And I wanted to learn something about the <laughs> religions that I was going to, the countries I was going to be going through, you know, the, so on. So I took a course in world religions. And I, I, I chose Buddhism to write my term paper on. You know, in, in those days, there weren't many books on Buddhism. In, in the public library in a big city in California, there was four books, can you believe it? Only four books on Buddhism in the whole library. Uh, but anyway, I, <laughs> I had to do some research and I wrote this paper and got an A plus on it. It was the first one and the last one I ever got. <laughs> And I'd never been one to, you know, go to the library and, you know, too much like that. And my mother was a school teacher and she saw me going to the library a few times and she went, what's got into that boy? <laughs> of course, she was happy about that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so after the uh, course was finished, of course, in those days, there weren't any Buddhist centers really, except maybe in New York, maybe in Los Angeles, there was an odd Chinese temple or something, but... Back in the really uh, late 60s, there was hardly any centers at all. Uh, or hardly any books, meditation, except transcendental meditation. That was the only type of meditation that was known about. Anyway, so having uh, got uh, you know, kind of turned on by this uh, intellectual understanding of the Dhamma, I basically just forgot about it because I was busy making up for lost time. I'd been in the army for three years in the height of the hippie era and all that, so I wanted to make up for lost time, right? Partying, taking drugs, and uh, all that. So, uh, you know, basically that uh, understanding of Dhamma went in one ear and out the other, because I didn't go on thinking about it. And I wound up doing a lot of things that, you know, I suffered from, uh, because I hadn't thought about it. 
Now I'm just saying this to show the connection between right understanding and right thought. That you have to go on thinking about what you uh, believe or what you have read. Otherwise it's not going to do you a lot of good. So right thought is the second step of the Eightfold Path. That means basically thinking about the Dhamma. Although specifically it refers to three types of right thought. It's called the uh, thought of renunciation uh, or nekkama sankappa. Sometimes it's also translated as right resolve, but uh, right thought is, we don't know. Uh, anyway, it's the, now this is all based on the Dhamma. So what is the, what is the second noble truth? Right? Craving or greed and attachment is uh, you know, one of the causes of suffering. And hoarding things and being addicted to so many uh, material objects and uh, comfort and uh, all this kind of thing, amassing things. So, because we cling to those things and then, uh, and then also we might do one, if we don't have enough money to get those things we crave, we might go out and steal and kill even, uh, you know, because these things happen for the way people, you know, get stuff. So, the thought of renunciation uh, is, you know, about uh, not, you know, thinking what a burden to have so many uh, possessions. Because when you have a lot of possessions and you have to worry about them, you know, getting stolen, or getting, uh, you know, de decayed or broken, or you have to protect them uh, and clean them, and you know, you wind up spending all your time just uh, fiddling around and uh, protecting about the stuff, and a lot of it that you don't even probably use much. That people amass so much stuff. So the thought of renunciation means uh, kind of. Uh, uh, Lightning, uh, I like to, word, to use the modern term downsizing, right? Or uh, simplifying one's life rather than getting burdened with so many unnecessary uh, uh, possessions that, uh, you know, to simplify the life. Now, some, some people read renunciation and think, oh my gosh, I have to become a monk or a nun, I have to give up. Uh, the world and become a monk or not, how can I do that? But for lay people, okay, that avenue may be, you know, there for certain, you know, some strange people like me, I suppose, but, <laughs> you know, uh, but for lay people, you, you know, you can see it as basically just uh, simplifying one's life or downsizing. <clears throat> so, you know, especially like with Adults, maybe they had a, a big house when, because they had three or four kids back in the day, you know, and then all of them have left the nest and, and the, you know, the, uh, the wife and the husband, or maybe it's mostly the wife has to clean the whole house and, you know, worry about all these things. And so, you know, downsize. 
So take stock of, of what you have. It's a good habit, like every year. Kind of take stock of the things that you have in your possessions, in your house. It just take a lot of your time, but don't really give you much uh, actual benefit. And it becomes the reason why you can't go on retreats or can't go to the Thursday night uh, meditation class or something because uh, uh, not only material possessions, but maybe you have all these different hobbies and you know basket weaving on Tuesday nights and bridge club on Monday nights and bowling on th Thursday nights and you know every, people pack every day of the week with things to do because they don't like to sit around and be lonely because then the ego thinks it's oh, nobody likes me. So, you know, it likes to join clubs and do lots of things because then, you know, it meets people and exciting. So that's one, uh, you know, one thing that's going on there. So anyway, because I've heard, you know, I lived here for 23 years and <clears throat> when we were having these retreats all the time and, you know, usually 50 people will sign up for the retreat <clears throat> and then or we have a limit of, you know, let's say 35 or 40. And then the last couple of days of retreat, we get all kind of phone calls. People have to cancel. Well, one of my seven cats got sick, and I have to give it diabetes injections or antibiotic injections every day, and I can't find anybody to cat sit. Well, who's going to water my 50 house plants? Well, what, you know, the excuses are endless. We've heard every single one. Uh, I, and, uh, and don't get me wrong, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know uh, <clears throat> some of those things are maybe valid, but I'm just trying to, uh, you know, stress a, a point that uh, <clears throat> people, uh, you know, can't find time to come to the retreats because of, you know, they <clears throat> have all these burdens and other chores uh, that they've accumulated to, to take care of. Uh, can I wait till later? Write it down for tonight, or maybe at the end. Uh, <clears throat> so, renunciation. And not only material possessions, well, in, in that sense. So, so when, the, when the kids go out of the house, the parents might sell the house, get a smaller one, get a motor home. We don't have a big yard to take care of. You know, simplify their life. There's ways of doing that. <clears throat> uh, But not only the material possessions, the mental baggage too. How much mental baggage do we carry around with us that most of it is, or at least a lot of it, is of not much use or an actual burden? Carrying around your grudges against somebody, you know, not having forgiven uh, somebody for something or just... <clears throat> you know, reliving, or reliving all your memories uh, and, and so on in the past and so on. But and it was just a, a lot of worries and, and fears and, that, you know, just uh, drain our, our energy. So to, you know, to renounce those or to at least try to, to let go of those, make them do the necessary steps. It helps to minimize those things. So you have more time to really do what you like to do. In terms of the Dhamma, that means more time for 
I suppose, going on retreats, practicing uh, your daily meditations longer, or, and so on. <coughs> so that helps to again to to for the the mind to appreciate the the, the you know the the non greed or to appreciate the the benefits of having a more uh, simplified mind that's not always having to worry about so many things. And then there's the right speech. Or excuse me, I, I forgot to... That was only the first part of right thought. Okay? So, the second of the right thoughts is the thought of non-ill will. Because so many people carry ill will with them. You know, about groups of people or about institutions or about individuals or so many things. <clears throat> that means, you know, kind of anger, ill will, resentment, animosity, uh, especially to, to people from your present or your past and, and so on and, and thinking about it. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a burden on the mind. So the antidote, well, the antidote for uh, the renunciation or the antidote for greed, of course, is the practice of giving. So as part of that renunciation, you know, you have a yard sale and get rid of a lot of the stuff that's cluttering up your, your house. <clears throat> Another aspect of that is, you know, it wastes your time. Like, you know, your 50 pair of shoes right in the closet. You're trying to find one shoe and the other one's missing. You have to dive through so many things and spend a half an hour trying to find the other shoe because you have so many, whatever it is, shoes or clothes or other objects in your garage you, you know, you spend so much time looking for because it's, it's all buried underneath other stuff. So that's another aspect of, of that. So the, uh, the antidote for ill will is practicing metta. And metta is, is based on the idea that all beings are in the same karmic soup, so to speak. And that everybody affects everybody else. And even to take that a little deeper from the Dhamma point of view, when you uh, bring in the idea about the many lifetimes our mind has been going through, that we've all been each other's mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, friend, enemy, and stranger, uh, many times over in all those infinite uh, lives. The Buddha has even uh, you know, mentioned that in the suttas. So that if you have some unfriendly person in this life or a so-called enemy, they, they might have been your mother in you know, a past life. Anyway, that's the attitude that we try to cultivate. Whether it's true or not, it's the attitude. And having the attitude will help you to uh, then perhaps have a softer uh, tone toward other people. So the, uh, the cultivating metta and seeing that you know all beings in, in the world, again, as I mentioned yesterday, there are patients in the hospital. They're all sick. So we're all sick. 
till we attain enlightenment, we're all still sick with ignorance. Because ignorance is the disease, actually. And what is disease? The word disease, right? Dis-ease. It's very interesting. Right? We think disease is a, you know, a virus or this, but dis-ease. Most people are not at ease because they're full of tension, stress. You know, always. So most people are not at ease. So that's the biggest disease. Not because people are in the past and future. Their mind's spinning around between past and future. They're not at ease. Because when there's past or future, there'll be worry, fear, anxiety about what's going to happen and so on. So the, the practice of metta is, you know, helps to minimize that when you see that anger coming up to instead reflect, you know, why am I angry at this person, you know, then that, okay, and bring all your Dharma knowledge on that. <clears throat> and then the third type of right thought is the thought of compassion, or called karuna. Now these two are a little bit related the metta and karuna. But compassion is not wanting to cause suffering to others. Wanting to relieve the suffering of others. And compassion is kind of more active. So you actively do something to relieve uh, the pain of others. Like console them, for example. Or help an old lady across the street that's struggling. Or go visit the sick uh, person, or uh, in some way, it's it's more kind of active, or you know, go uh, work in a soup kitchen to feed the homeless or something. There's so so many aspects of that. Whereas metta is more of a thought, you know, cultivating a thought of friendliness. But of course, it also should manifest in your actions of body too, friendly actions and and so on with others, but still the, uh, the metta is, you know, is an actual meditation, it's more of a mental, whereas the compassion is more physical. When you see some, somebody suffering, then you try to help them. <coughs> but it doesn't mean you have to help everybody, but within our limits, you have to understand one's limits. And there's kind of, you know, imbalanced compassion or, excuse me if I use the term, but sometimes it's, it's been called idiot compassion. You know, for example, uh, some lady who wants to save all the cats you know, in the neighborhood, every stray cat uh, uh, that she comes across, she brings it into the house, or he, politically correct, okay? <coughs> uh, so, there's one lady, because you hear these stories sometimes, one lady had more than you know, 50, 60 cats in a house, and she couldn't take care of them properly. You know, she, and they, they were just, you know, dirtying up the whole house, and it stunk, and the cats were sick because they were laying in their own mess and uh, not getting enough food. And the poli animal police had to come and arrest the lady. But she thought she was doing it out of compassion, but yet she was actually causing more, a lot of suffering to the animals. 
and then eventually uh, cause lots of problems. I just mentioned that just as a very gross type of example of, uh, you know, that uh, all these different types of things like renunciation, even uh, in, in everything else that you hear about, always has to be middle pot and it has to be based on wisdom, not ignorance. It has to be based on it. That's why wisdom, right understanding comes first. Before you start to practice other things, you have to understand the meaning and the ultimate purpose of why we are practicing these things. So, those, uh, so apart from the thought of renunciation, the thought of metta, the thought of non-cruelty or compassion, but it means, you know, thinking about the dumb. The more you think about it, the more it's going to stick in your mind. Actually memorize it. And so, you know, reading uh, sutras is a very good way, especially Dhammapada verses, very short little, you know, four-line little stanzas that have a lot of uh, deep uh, meaning in them, or just reading... uh, uh, the text to to reinforce in your mind over and over, so it becomes like a, a, an instant repertoire. You know, when you've studied enough and, and memorized some stuff, it's like when something happens. You, oh yeah, I, I know that. Not that you have to quote uh, scripture, but uh, it's sort of like having it on in Google, Google in the back of your mind. Right, something happens and you Google it. How do I deal with fear? Google it. What the Buddhists say? Okay, yes. Uh, how do I deal with this, with that? How do I practice mindfulness? Uh, so, like that, the having that, uh, you know, that intellectual understanding and, and thinking about it. So that any time during the day, there's any incident that happens during the day, Instead of like blaming others or taking sides and getting into arguments, you, you, you can, there's a little bit of Dhamma you can reflect on that. Like you see two people quarreling over some maybe minor matter. And then you could say, ah, that's greed. Look at greed is causing suffering. And then ask you, do I still have greed in myself? Do I act like that? Uh, whether it's people quarreling or, you know, what so many, <laughs> you know, you, you, you see these things all the time. You know, you hear it on the TV, politicians telling lies and then suffering on it, getting caught for their actions. Everybody eventually gets caught for their actions, 99% of them. And then they suffer big time, right? Because even something you might have done 20 years ago, you know, it can come out of the closet and, and catch you. We see that all the time, especially with famous people and politicians and, and so on, if not even ourselves. <laughs> you know, so uh, when these things happen, that's the time, ah, yes, to bring the Dhamma back and reflect on that. For the purpose of reinforcing in yourself, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to go through that again. And, and so on. So... That's why, uh, but if you don't have any Dhamma in your mind to think about, then you're not going to be able to call on it. Uh, 
it some important time. Because <clears throat> the more we think about Dhamma, then the less time we have to think about Adhamma. Adhamma means you know, things that are contrary to the practice of, of Dhamma. So following the right thought, you know, so based on your, the way you think is the way you're going to speak. That's why right speech is the third uh, step of the Eightfold Path. And right speech has four kinds. The popular one most people know about is about uh, telling lies, to refrain from telling lies. Because people always usually wind up getting caught for uh, telling lies or they lose sleep and they worry about getting caught. Uh, and uh, you know, it causes them a lot of torment in their mind. Uh, and so to tell the truth, the antidote for telling lies is to tell you know, the truth or at least don't tell a lie. Uh, and we all know that, you know, the, the problems that come with uh, doing that. And that's one of the five precepts, of course, uh, refrain from telling lies. The second of the, the right speech is to refrain from malicious, malicious speech. And this is basically uh, like uh, gossip mongering, backbiting, talking about people behind their backs, spreading rumors, whether it's true or not. And usually we do that in order to break up friendships or uh, defame the other person, to bring another person down, and usually to to deflect attention away from yourself. We can see this in politicians very well because they always mudsling, bring out all these uh, things on others so that people will look at the other person and not them. You know, they might be in hot water and then they start <laughs> bringing out dirt on others and, you know, it's so common. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, usually talking about others involves our own ego. Either we want to be known as the person that has all the news or uh, basically or some other subtle, a lot of subtle things work in the mind or to just to, uh, you know, r ruin somebody's reputation or bring them down. Even if it's true, we shouldn't really indulge in that. Let somebody else tell it, but even if it's true. Uh, I mean, the bad things. Now, the good qualities... You know, there's no harm in telling the good qualities, but it's especially the, the uh, telling the qualities that are going to make other people turn against them and then maybe uh, favor you. So actually, it's very interesting. The Pali word is called pisunya vacha, which means to break friendships, the breaking of friendships, uh, because the ulterior motive a lot is, uh, you know, to tell something that uh, people won't like that person and they'll maybe break up and then you'll be able to then uh, <laughs> go and <laughs> get that or something like that. So basically it's a, you know, that kind of thing. 
And then there's the harsh speech, which is downright swear words, you know, using the vulgar swear words, uh, but especially with uh, anger behind it or hatred behind it. You know, sometimes in this day and age, some of the swear words are kind of almost common language, you know, like some simple four-letter words maybe, but uh, uh, and people might just say it in like a joking or something, maybe not with anger or hatred, but, you know, when it's aimed at somebody with anger or hatred, then it's much uh, stronger. But generally, it's better to refrain from those because people can all, always take it the, the wrong way. Uh, because it, again, it just, uh, especially when you use it, it it will cause reactions in others and uh, will come back to us as karmic consequences. And then the last one is frivolous talk. This is probably the hardest one to for people to practice, or useless talk. In the Pali Sutras, it's called animal talk. Uh, <laughs> But basically, it means talking about things other than Dhamma. You know, talking about things that just excite, excite the senses and excite, just make a person kind of silly and, and very frivolous kind of things. But, you know, it's, in this day and age, it's very difficult to uh, you know, uh, totally refrain from those sort of uh, things. Because usually it happens when you get up in a conversation, it might start up as, uh, you know, oh, how are you? You know, where do you live? And, you know, but then, you know, our conversations easily get carried away in so many directions, and oftentimes it turns into malicious backbiting, telling tales about others, and just uh, nonsense, uh, talking about lust and delusions and, uh, and the crazy things. So control the speech, because a lot of karma is created through the speech. In fact, you know, especially like tail-bearing about others and telling lies. And these are wounds, you know, uh, ill-timed ill speech at the, to somebody at the wrong time can hurt them more than a, a stab wound or can take longer to overcome than, you know, a stab wound or even a bullet in some cases. So... That's why the right speech is uh, very important, especially in terms of, again, the karmic consequences. And then having to deal with guilt, worry, remorse, and fear about getting caught or blamed uh, for indulging in those things. And then usually the way you speak is also the way you're going to act. Uh, so right action is the fourth step of the Eightfold Path. And there's three types of right action, I mean, mentioned in the Sutta, which is the uh, killing. It's how do you use the body, actions done with this body. So killing or even physically, you know, harming and abusing people uh, with the body, whether it's with your fists or taking weapons and so on. And then uh, stealing, because normally we do that uh, with our, you know, hands or our legs. We walk to a house and <laughs> you know, whatever. So stealing uh, and sexual misconduct. Uh, and this is a very heavy one. 
along with uh, killing. And we can see, you know, in recent news is the sexual misconduct, uh, even amongst uh, people that, you know, should, we shouldn't be doing that. I'm not going to mention specific names, but... Uh, and it's just prevalent, especially in these modern uh, permissive societies and so on, also repressive societies where physical contacts and others have been repressed in people and these urges come out and it, it causes so much suffering. And scars that last for a lifetime may be becoming abused by this type of uncontrolled lust and greed for this uh, and, and, but especially it means by taking advantage of disadvantaged people or taking advantage of weak people or young people, you know, of course, uh, childs, uh, but even other people too. Uh, but usually it's defined as committing adultery, to use that term. But, uh, you know, if you're married in a lawful relationship, then uh, you, know, you should honor those uh, vows if you took that commitment uh, because when you break that it's going to cause suffering to you know a lot of different people including somebody might come around and physically harm you as well we all know the effect so you know all these are based on wanting to reduce suffering in the life all the all these practices of the eightfold path but especially of uh, right uh, speech and right action. They're about minimizing suffering. You know, it's funny. People, if you ask anybody probably in the world, you know, do you want to be happy and less suffering? Most people would probably say yes. Do you think? But then why are they doing things that actually bring them downright misery and pain? the consequences of their uncontrolled actions. So anyway, the, you know, the, uh, you know, the right speech and the right action cover most of the, of the precepts. Uh, you know, found within, within the five uh, precepts. <clears throat> so when we practice right speech and right action, and there's another one that's not specifically mentioned as in those right speech or action, but it's about intoxicating the mind. So that's not directly mentioned in the Eightfold Path, but it's uh, assumed. Because, you know, a sober person may not break many of the precepts when they're in a sober state. They may do some, but, you know, when a person's intoxicated, you know, they can do anything and do all kind of foolish uh, things, dangerous things, even killing others, by, you know, driving in a car and killing others and so on. So, the, you know, that's all about, you know, learning how to, to live uh, the life because it's very important according to the meditation. So that's why I'm mentioning these things, why the Eightfold Path, the path leading to the end of suffering, because so much of the suffering involves these kind of uh, actions, uncontrolled thoughts, and speech, and actions that's intimately 
connected with the law of karma. And then there's right livelihood. And this is especially important for like lay people. There's the fifth of the fifth step of the eightfold path. That means having a a job or a way of earning your living, because basically everyone has to earn a living of one kind or another to support themselves in this world. But it should be an occupation that doesn't cause you to directly or ideally even indirectly break any of those uh, precepts. And, you know, there's specifically certain occupations that are mentioned in the text, like, let's say a Buddhist probably shouldn't be a a farmer that raises animals that are going to be butchered and slaughtered, for example, or dealing with uh, poisons and weapons or and uh, vices that just uh, also like dealing in alcohol or drugs and vices that corrupt uh, other people's lives and also corrupt one's own life and uh, so many things that you know have their karmic uh, interconnections that one way or another can come back to us and even in many jobs these days is almost sometimes difficult to find a job that isn't connected in some way with subtle deceit, not telling the truth about one's products, for example, and we we know what that is is about, Uh, or deception, outright fraud, even banks, you know, have committed so much uh, fraud, and and all these people wind up in prison, or at least a lot of them. Uh, so, and, but e- even coming down to like, a, you know, a secretary doing the books for a big company, right? So, you know, you, you're doing your job and you're keeping the books of a big, you know, multi-million dollar company. And the boss comes over and, you know, during tax time and looks over your shoulder and says, oh, why don't you change that uh, 50 million to just uh, 5 million? His income. What? Well, that wouldn't be right. Well, there's ten people looking for your job. And so the person feels maybe pressured to do that, even though they know that that's probably not right. Uh, and we see that's happened so much. And the, even those people get eventually you know, caught up and so on. So... It's about having a livelihood where you can go home at night and say, today I didn't hurt a flea. I didn't do anything that anybody is going to suspect or blame or find out later that I had done something uh, that I shouldn't have done. But this is what people lose their sleep over and causes them ulcers and causes them other physical problems is the worrying and the and the all these stuff about things that you did that you shouldn't have done or things you didn't do you should have done or just just the stress and, and the worry it makes people physically sick also so 
you know, those are ways, especially for laymen, those first, uh, uh, you know, five steps to the Eightfold Path, those are the guidelines for uh, living the life, your daily life, your daily interactions. Because every single day, it comes up where uh, pressure or temptation to break one or other types of these precepts are going to perhaps come to you. And if you don't have your, know yourself, if you don't have some control over yourself, the temptations are very great, you know, to make it easy, you know, 10,000 bucks by, you know, doing this and doing that, you know, especially in this tight economy, uh, day and age and so on, there's so many pressures and temptations. And, uh, and people are looking for immediate uh, gratification, of course, but then they wind up suffering down the line, sometimes big time. And so each person has to always be mindful when these things may creep up at any unexpected time, and you have to have your dhamma there. Ah, okay, this is right, li wrong livelihood. This is wrong speech. This is wrong action. You know, uh, and so on. So that's what I mean is we need to have that our, our understanding of the Dhamma on Google Alert, you know, that we can uh, immediately recall it and don't have to wait. I have to go to the library and get a Buddhist text first to find out. But now you can find anything you want on the internet. Just Google in what did the Buddha say about this and you'll get a ton of stuff. Uh, not only uh, that, but so. <clears throat> okay, now, uh, you know, there's five steps of the Eightfold Path that we haven't covered, but we're already kind of getting near the end of our time. So I'll probably talk about those later or in, you know, if it comes up in questions. Of course, those last steps are right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So we've already been talking about, you know, the right mindfulness and right concentration. But the right effort basically is the effort to do all of the above. You know, the effort to overcome laziness and to practice uh, those things. And tomorrow I'll finish up some other uh, uh, parts of that as well. Okay. Questions down So again, just as you're sitting there, take a deep, slow breath, just momentarily touch base. From the ground zero, the present moment, body grounded to the floor. for as long as you comfortably can until you kind of get tired of it. 
but not in a strain, straining way, just 